The Energy Gang is brought to you by Fluence, a global leader in battery-based energy storage technology and services. Fluence has been at the forefront of the storage industry, commercializing the first grid-connected battery systems in 2008, and is now deploying multi-gigawatt fleets for customers globally today. The Fluence team has championed energy storage as the cornerstone of our zero-carbon electric future. Learn more at FluenceEnergy.com and join them on their mission to transform the way we power our world. We're also brought to you by NorCal Controls. As a total controls and monitoring solution provider for solar power plants, NorCal supports every phase of your project, from turnkey design solutions to post-OEM enhancements, troubleshooting, and training. NorCal goes beyond the vendor mentality to partner with you in building solar solutions that are flexible, scalable, and completely customized to your current and future needs. Maintain, expand, and scale your system anytime, anywhere with confidence. Visit NorCalControls.net to learn more. Green Tech Media Podcast. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. I'm a contributing editor at GTM. Welcome. This week, electrify everything isn't just a good slogan. It's the fastest way to decarbonize and create tens of millions of jobs, and it can be done using off-the-shelf technology. A team of respected experts drops the first in a series of technical manuals for the clean energy economy. What are they calling for? Then BP gets real. The oil giant says it will slash oil and gas production by 40% in a decade while ramping low-carbon tech by 10x. What are the forces pushing BP's shift? And lastly, the New York area utility PSEG was supposed to have learned a massive lesson after Hurricane Sandy. So why did thousands of people just spend nearly a week without air conditioning and with rotted food in their refrigerators? We'll look at PSEG's failed response, plus its major coal divestment. And we're going to be doing that with my two co-hosts. One is our guest co-host who is back it uh, looks like she might have enjoyed last week's conversation. It is Dr. Melissa Lott. She is a senior research scholar at the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. Hello, Melissa. Hey, y'all. Good morning. How are you there in Austin, Texas? Doing good. The sun is out. And so that's a good day as far as I'm concerned. Is your Roomba safe away? <laughs> <laughs> My Roomba is officially in the garage. It will not disturb us as we have a good chat this morning. <laughs> last week, we got all the tape back and... Ingrid was assembling the episode and she says, was someone cleaning the house behind you? What is going on? And we figured out that it was actually Melissa's Roomba. Jigger Shaw is our other regular co-host. He's there in Bethesda, Maryland, and he's the president of Generate Capital. Hello, Jigger. Hey, it's been raining two days straight here, so I don't have the sun that uh, Melissa talked about. But, uh, you know, I feel like, you know, I should be thankful for rain, so... Just a reminder that we have a live show coming up on August 25th. So the day after Catherine Hamilton comes back from vacation, we are going to throw a lot of show notes at her and make her have a discussion in front of a live audience online, of course. <laughs> uh, so we'll we'll make sure to turn her relaxation around real quick. Uh, but we're going to have a live show that you can sign up for today, and we'll have that link in the show notes. So that is on August 25th. So let's turn to our topics this week, and we'll start out with another 
report that has come out. But this one is very different from some of the climate reports we've been discussing. A plan to create millions and millions of jobs by electrifying the economy and slashing emissions 85%. It's simple, it's elegant, and the authors say it is totally doable. The authors are Saul Griffith, Sam Kalish, and Alex Lasky. Uh, You might know Saul Griffith. We profiled him on a recent What It Takes episode, and he talked a little bit about how this the the origins of this plan came together. And Alex Lasky is the uh, co-founder of Opower, and we profiled his co-founder, Dan Yates, on a recent What It Takes as well. So they're part of a team called Rewiring America, which is putting out a series of technical reports and mobilization plans for rapidly electrifying and decarbonizing America and putting a lot of people to work in the process. So there are two parts to this conversation. One is the actual modeling that goes into the plan, and the other is the economic benefit and jobs claims. So, Melissa, let's look at the origins. Um, It doesn't start with emissions. Instead, it looks at decarbonization the way an engineer might, an engineer like yourself. Walk us through the basis of how they're modeling the decarbonized economy in this report. Yes, it's interesting. Uh, You know, I've been a modeler for 15 plus years. I like modeling things, seeing what happens with that. Um, From a modeling approach, I mean, frequently when we look at climate mitigation, so how do we reduce emissions, you know, we start with an emissions target or frequently a combination of emissions targets and economic development targets, et cetera. And then we kind of back our way into what the mix of things could look like to meet that. So it's this top-down approach or this perfect foresight. We know what's happening in the future and we back out from there. In this report, they really looked at what machines and equipment are out there, what could we get out there and how quickly could we do it? And they went from there. So they said, okay, what can we get online if we really double down on this? And they broke it into kind of a couple stages. Uh, Stage one being, let's ramp up production of technologies and stage two being, okay, let's deploy these things as quickly as possible. So it was this bottom up, I I call it an engineer's dream because it gives me a lot of tech to play with and look at. Um, But it really gives you the nitty gritty on how do we get this done. So in this modeling, they mostly focus on electrification. Unpack how they do that. Yeah, so on the electrification side, they look at how do we beef up the supply side of things? So how do we get all the power generation we need in line? And I've got a lot of thoughts, especially around their cost assumptions and and what they think we can actually accomplish. Um, Jigger, I'm curious what you think about it as well. But then on the demand side, I mean, they also say, okay, every car that gets sold when your car gets taken off the road is an electric one. Every bit of equipment in your house, when it gets replaced, there's no more combustion. It's going to be electric. Um, so it's it's essentially a near 100% replacement rate with zero carbon technologies as soon as you would naturally retire those things. They do have a caveat in the report, which is interesting, of saying they're not forcing you to early retire um, anything, but it would help if you did. <laughs> I, like, I, <laughs> I think this is fantastic, right? I think that It's exactly what we've been saying on the Energy Gang for seven years, right? Which is that we have the technologies necessary to decarbonize, and we have to deploy it faster. I think the part of this that um, is still sort of not fitting exactly together for me um, is, you know, what are the forces around here that will make it happen? Um, You know, I think that part of the reason I'm hopeful, I had a long conversation with Alex about this. We had a good reconnection and he's inspired me to figure out how to get involved with rewiring America. But like, is it like when we think about, for instance, uh, the planned obsolescence of natural gas utilities, 
Natural gas utilities spend about $17 billion a year on distribution grids and other sort of capex in the local level. You could imagine that they could spend that $17 billion making all these things come true. So whenever someone's gas boiler you know, uh, goes out, they could replace it with electrify everything solutions, and they could actually just charge people 30 bucks a month or whatever for the next 20 years to recoup their their costs, right? So there are ways to actually figure out how to do this. But I think it's critical for a report like this to come out first and to say it's actually possible, the math actually works. Now, where's the political willpower to actually make this happen? And there are some really interesting insights that come out of the report that I think um, many of us who've been steeped in this know, but for, I think, the first-time uh, watcher is shocking, right? Um, so the in- Energy and Information Administration and many other sources really always compare solar and wind to uh, primary energy, right? So the way that the world works is you basically pull oil out of the ground. 10% of all of our energy in the United States and pretty much globally, is used to bring this kind of stuff out of the ground. And then you say, you know, this is how many quads of energy we use as a society, right? And so if solar and wind come in at 2% of that energy, then people say, look how small it is. But in fact, when that energy actually goes to keep your beer cold, as Amory Lovins would say, it loses about 70% of its energy through the process, right? In transporting the oil, then like figuring out how to put it into a refinery, converting it into useful fuels like gasoline and diesel, then actually burning that fuel and, you know, and creating the electricity that then actually keeps your beer cold. All the losses in there are eliminated when you go directly to electricity. But But we are constantly comparing ourselves to primary energy. And so part of what this report shows is that we could actually eliminate 50% of our entire primary energy usage just by electrifying everything, right? Because you lose all those losses. And I I get what you're saying. So yeah, this is a thermodynamic reality, right? So when we burn something. Uh, I mean, you know, when you drive your car, you really don't want to like touch the hood or I mean, you definitely don't want to touch the engine um, after you've done it for a while. But what that is, I mean, that's waste, right? So that is energy that could convert it to heat, which is not what you wanted. You wanted to move your car down the road or in the case of generating electricity, you wanted to turn that fuel into electrons, but you got a lot of heat. And we've gotten good at, you know, improving those efficiencies. But at the end of the day, it's not nearly as efficient as if you can just get rid of that heat. So that's what we see in LED bulbs. I mean, there's countless examples. But one thing I'll push back on is around these costs. So they highlighted it straight in the report. And I'm I'm curious, you know, what y'all chat, if you chatted about this at all. But they have some ambitious (laughs) uh, cost targets when it comes particularly to solar, which they highlight straight up. They say we're going to assume that the U.S. could achieve the kind of cost that we're seeing in Australia that we're seeing down under. Um, But also we're going to see costs for nuclear actually reaching, I believe, the numbers we're seeing out of China, not what we have been able to even remotely contemplate accomplishing here in the U.S. lately. Um, And I think it's important that they push this number because it's one of those things where it says, okay, if the goal is to get to $3 a watt for nuclear as one example, how do we get there? And this is an ongoing conversation within the nuclear industry, and it's an important one. Because if we walk away from our existing nuclear, and if we don't build anything new, I mean, we have to replace that with something else. But I mean, from a, a numbers perspective, I just, I'm not 
sure how the numbers go out for me. And this 1000 to 2000 per year savings per household on average, I mean, how attainable is that really? Is the point actually that we don't have to assume it's going to be a massive cost increase for households? I can get behind that. But a savings, uh, there's a lot of assumptions in here I'm not sure I'm comfortable with. The preciseness of the numbers are are, I agree with you, not important, right? I think we talked about this with the UC Berkeley study when it was like 1.7 trillion to decarbonize the grid by 2035. And their assumptions were far more modest in terms of costs of solar, wind, um, nuclear, et cetera. And also electrification rates. I mean, they stopped at 2035, so they didn't do the real deep electrification. But I, I get your point. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that the the key, though, to this thing is to say that the vast majority of the dollars that we need to make this conversion are already being spent, right? And so I think that's the main point that comes out of this is that is that in the renewal cycles that we already have for appliances and for cars and for other things, that these, these dollars are really being spent. So, you know, when you think about the $20 trillion it takes to rewire the entire uh, grid and buy all new appliances and all new cars and all new things, um, that it's only about 250 to 300 billion dollars of government subsidies that they're planning on to actually convert that stuff which is a pretty small number right and so i think it's i think it basically goes to show that if we shift uh, expenditures from bad to good on a consistent basis and we actually make that the government policy of the land this becomes a lot less daunting, right? Do I believe that all of these numbers are exactly accurate? No. Do I think that like we're going to get to 100% of all bad stuff being converted to good stuff? Probably not, right? But I think that it's important for people to recognize that like, look, it's it's easy to just be a doomsday person and just say, we're already headed to 1.5 degrees. We're going to go past two feedback loops. We're all going to die, right? So like, it's just, it's easy to go that way. And I think what these reports show is that it's not impossible, right? Like it's actually technically possible to save us from the worst impacts of climate change. And it's actually a hopeful future, right? Part of what this report shows, which I'm not suggesting we should all be proud of, but they're saying that you can still drive your SUVs and still live in your 6,000 square foot houses, right? That actually electrifying everything doesn't mean you have to downsize and doesn't mean you have to sacrifice. Now, I think a little downsizing, a little sacrificing would probably be a good thing, but I think that it just it just shows that the technology is here. And that's something we've been saying, I think, on this podcast for eight, nine years. Well, as long as we've been around. Is it seven years, eight years? <laughs> But we've been saying it for the whole time. And I think that that message needs to be reinforced. And it allows for optimism to reign supreme. Yeah, no, just on this point, I'll say I so often hear that what we need is a massive technology breakthrough, that we need breakthroughs. There's no way we can do it now. And I'm like, look, would a technology breakthrough make it easier? Absolutely. You know, would a cost breakthrough make it easier? Sure. But what we're lacking right now isn't technologies to get it done. It's leadership and will to get it done. I mean, that's the bottom line in this. And I agree with you. I mean, this report does highlight that. Melissa, does this feel to you like a technical b- blueprint for something like the Green New Deal? In a lot of ways, yeah. I think that's pretty a pretty good description. And I think we need we need both sides, right? So we need the vision in policy and regulation. And then we also need to know technically, how do we actually do this? Where do we put steel on the ground? How do we get it done? Is it even a technically feasible type of solution? If we have both, we can really get down the road quickly. If we just focus on one and don't consider the other, um, we're setting ourselves up for a bumpy ride. 
One thing that's different is that I remember back in 2006, maybe 2007, when Al Gore came out and said, we want 100% renewable energy in 10 years. And it just seemed absurd given the level of maturity of technologies and where costs were. But today, you know, this this group of folks can come out and make these ambitious claims. And um, while we can sit here and pick apart the modeling and show what, what pieces are unrealistic and what pieces are possible, it feels much more directionally correct. And like, like it feels much more achievable, even though what they are calling for is extraordinarily ambitious. Uh, the, the way that these kinds of plans can be considered is much different today. Absolutely. I just think the level of ambition that we refer to, we just have to like dial ourselves back a little bit here, right? Like this is actually America proving again that it can't do big things, right? Remember that when like America decided to put a man on the moon, it didn't know how to do it. When it passed the Clean Air Act, it didn't know that scrubbers were going to be 90% cheaper than they first suspected, right? And when Al Gore said that, you know, that we should decarbonize the entire grid in 2007, that was bold American leadership. Today, this is laggard leadership, right? This is us saying now that Dubai has hit 1.5 cents a kilowatt hour for solar, now that we've actually figured out that offshore wind is going to get to below 6 cents a kilowatt hour, now that we know that everything's cost effective, let's put together a massive spreadsheet and say that we should do it for real, right? That's not leadership. Like, I'm fine with, like, you know, touting. I think the work that Saul and Alex and others have done here is fabulous. But I think that I... I believe that America can do more and be more, right? Like, I think we should be saying that we're going to sequester gigatons of carbon with carbon sequestration and storage, even though the technology isn't mature yet, right? I think we should be saying that we're going to bring the oil and gas industry into building massive amounts of uh, geothermal in this country, even though we haven't proven that we can actually do that as a country. Like, that, I think, is what America was, right before during the clean air act the clean water act all of these ozone battles like i think that's what it is now it's like prove it to me at scale at billion dollar scale and then we'll like show some leadership i mean i think it's a mix of that i, I just on that i agree i think we should be ambitious we should push the edges i mean this is the energy sector transitioning it's not all of the emissions and bottom line is the faster we get you know emissions down and the more that we pull out of the air the less damage we're going to see to the environment and also to our health so of course we want to be ambitious we should push those edges but we also are talking about electricity i mean we're talking about something people need to you know keep the air conditioning on and the heat in the winter um and it's if we don't consider the practical side of things we have these great ambitions and these great dreams but we won't get there nearly as quickly as as we could. So I say push the edge 100%, but also do all the practical stuff we can do now. And I'm with you. This report is great because it says, hey, stop talking about how we need 16 more great new inventions. Here's what we can do now. Stop passing the buck. We can do this right now. So what do you all make of the jobs figures in here? This report is actually, we're talking about some of the foundational analysis, but the new report that came out was about the number of jobs that could be created deploying this stuff. Um, they model uh, potential job creation numbers based off of an NREL number called the, the JEDI method. This has been around for, I don't know, some it was created sometime in the last decade. Um, and they say that at 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 the peak of deployment, we could create about 25 million new jobs, and then we could create 5 million lasting new jobs. 
realistic, unrealistic? What do you think about these jobs figures that have come out? I, I get why the report is focused on job, jobs, jobs. I get the political realities that lead to this focus. And honestly, what we're all living right now uh, and the unemployment numbers that we see and that many of us are living are, I mean, they're staggering. So I get the focus on it. But honestly, I agree with David Roberts. And I think this is jigger part of what you were saying, where the jobs portion of this report in many ways is maybe the least interesting thing in this report. And I say that in part because when I talk to my economist colleagues, so I'm an engineer, I refer to the experts on this one, and I talk to them about these econometric estimates. Um, I think the word on Twitter lately has been pseudoscience. And they say this in the report. They're like, look, you know, essentially how this method works is if you spend more money, you get more jobs. Is that really what we want to be saying? Um, jobs are great, <laughs> but <laughs> just spending more money to get more jobs, of course, that's not where we want to go. Yeah, the Jedi uh, mind trick here. Uh, <laughs> I think, um, look, I, you know, I, I think that it is true that close to one out of every 10 uh, jobs that were created after the financial crisis were in the clean energy industry. So um, so that's just data that you can record from 2009 to 2016. Um, that number started falling off after that. But um, so I think that there is, there is a lot of jobs, to, there are a lot of jobs to be created. I think the other piece of this, which I think is important, is that I don't necessarily believe that we're going to have to have that much electricity generating capacity. So they're talking about going from 400 gigawatts of continuous, you know, load uh, to something on 1400 gigawatts. I mean, just to put it in perspective for folks, um, we in 2000, we use about the same amount of electricity today that we used in 2003 um, in the United States. We've basically been flat. Um, in that time, about 5% of all electricity in the United States now goes to data centers from close to zero in 2003, right? And the reason we were able to accommodate all that additional load, right, and then all the industrial load from the fracking industry, et cetera, is because we banned incandescent light bulbs and we went to LED lights and we got so efficient that we were able to accommodate all of this. And I think when you pair this work with Emery Lovin's work in Reinventing Fire, you can actually see that we actually have the ability to do massive amounts of additional energy efficiency within the country, which I think would then make the, you know, impacts on our electricity grid less daunting. Yeah, but um, I this think is, there are ways of doing that. This is a really important point, though, because so many studies, they say, OK, we're going to do, uh, you know, a ton of energy efficiency. I think Maria Vandehoven, when she was the head of the IEA, you know, it was uh, that was when the energy efficiency as the excuse me. That was when energy efficiency is the first fuel came out as, you know, the big headline. Yeah. And I get that. But efficiency, retrofitting individual buildings, these types of things. I mean, what this report is presenting is difficult, but that stuff is very difficult. And at the end of the day, if somebody's telling me that effectively, you know, in my store or in my home, I'm going to have to turn off the lights or massively shift when I use energy. That's a pretty daunting challenge. And so this report is saying, actually, we're not going to assume you have to do any of that. And it's still possible. So every bit of that, just like shutting down the high emitting power plants, just makes it easier. But I don't need that to actually get this done, which is a really important point. Oh, I totally agree with you, right? That's what the report is saying. I'm saying that I just think that when you think about, you know, like we 10x the weatherization budget in 2009, right? I think that that is something that we're probably going to do again in a stimulus package in the future, right? And so there's 12 million homes that still need to be weatherized, um, where, you know, they couldn't keep their temperature above 55 degrees during the polar vortex a few years ago. So my sense is you're going to do both, right? When you think about money in jobs out, right? Weatherization, energy efficiency is absolutely the money in jobs out, like, you know, equation. So like, I just think that this is what you call 
a, you know, sort of base case scenario around what it would look like if we converted everything from bad to good. And I think it makes total sense. And I love the report and I love the work. I'm just saying that there are other ways of mitigating the um, impacts on the electricity grid. Look, I I talked to someone who read through the analysis and said, this is very solid, but back of the envelope, right? And I think uh, both the technical analysis and the the jobs analysis. But I will quibble with um, your characterization, Melissa, because when I read right now, you know, money in, jobs out, I see that as a good thing. We are in a devastating crisis for a lot of people, more than 16 million people out of work. It was very clear after the 2008 financial crisis that we did not spend enough money as a national government to um, accelerate economic healing. I mean, like it was very clear that we should have spent more money. And the investments that we did make in clean energy, um, well, we probably didn't create as many jobs as expected, or we didn't manage many of the green jobs programs as well as we could have had an enormous economic impact. And there were a ton of jobs created. There were, you know, wind and solar were the fastest, um, some of the fastest growing sectors in the country and continue to pace for well over a decade. So I I just feel like that is a message that can resonate right now. Like, yes, let's spend more money and get more jobs. We need to be spending money right now. and And I get your point. I think, you know, at the top, I'm saying I get why there's a focus on jobs, jobs, jobs. I'm quibbling with the exact numbers and how we come at them. Mm-hmm. And I feel like by setting it up as being we will absolutely create X number of jobs, you're setting yourself up for public failure in a way when that many jobs doesn't materialize. Um, I think we rarely see it going the other way where suddenly actually we thought it would be 25 million and we got 50, which, hey, that'd be great if we could get that for that money, especially right now when so many people are unemployed. No, but I I so but but I do think that if we start with 25 and we get 12 and a half, I think people are going to be okay. So like I think that on the job stuff, look, I I don't know that the numbers matter all that much. I think what matters is, is like when you're actually rebuilding the country, which is what this means, that requires a lot of blue collar jobs. It requires a lot of training, it requires a lot of skilled labor. Right. And so whether you're talking about unions, whether you're talking about safety, whether you're talking about other things, it matters that you're not just throwing bodies at the challenge, but that you're actually throwing, you know, like qualified, well-trained people at this and ultimately rewiring the whole country is going to take a long time. It's not something that's going to happen in two years. And so, like, we are going to need people at this for a long time, right? And so, so I, I think that that just makes logical sense, whether or not the actual number that they reported in the jobs data was correct or not. Melissa? Yeah, and I, I would say on the 12.5 versus 25, I, there will be people who will highlight that, though, as being a failure, whether or not we want it to be viewed that way. If somebody says, I'm going to give you $25 and they give you $12.50, you're going to look at those quarters and go like, what? You know, this isn't what I was supposed to get. But I'm with you. I mean, this is why large chunks of Joe Biden's energy plan are devoted to helping labor. I would take it a step further from what you said, Jigger, and said, you want qual- you're going to have qualified, highly trained people in these jobs. These jobs are also going to be well-paying and, as you alluded to, stable and longer term, um, which is the kind of jobs we want, not something that's just going to disappear in a couple of years. The only way I see these being weaponized is if Joe Biden plucks this number, puts it in a report and makes it a major policy platform, because clearly Obama got attacked for not creating as many green jobs as he said he would. And, um, you know, when he said he was going to get a million electric cars on the road by what, 2000, 
10 or yeah, something like 15, that, 2011, think, yeah. he got attacked mm-hmm. for that. And so, yes, the numbers do matter, but clearly I think that the, the, directionally this report has weight. So, Melissa, final question. Will this underlying analysis from Rewiring America move the needle in any way? What do you think its impact is? Oh, I think it starts a conversation. Oh, well, it adds to a conversation that has already been ongoing and it strengthens it. One thing we haven't talked about much is around this whole air pollution and health benefits that are integrated in this. So within this transition that they're outlining, if we do this, we're seeing massive improvements in air quality um, and the number of kids who won't get asthma and the number of people who won't develop lung cancer despite never smoking. I mean, the numbers are huge and the health benefits are huge. So you know, I feel like that part of the conversation, I'm glad that they included it. I'm glad that it's part of this. And I feel like it just adds strength to it. Jigger? Yeah, look, I mean, you know, ditto. <laughs> I think Melissa's <laughs> absolutely right. I mean, all of this stuff has been around since 2009, right? I'm glad that Alex and Saul were able to figure out a way to put it into one coherent piece and get the conversation started again. But, you know, the National Academy of Sciences said that we spend $100 billion a year in real expenditures on fossil fuel-related health impacts, right? Harvard University said in 2011 it was about $500 billion over, you know, the time of sort of like an oil well, et cetera, right? Like, I, I think that these numbers have been floating around for a long time. The Apollo Alliance, like, all this work has been around. I'm glad that they have figured out a way to communicate it in a way that is reaching people, and I hope it reaches more people. Agreed. A quick break here to talk about our supporters of the show, the people who bring you this show for free. We're brought to you by Fluence. Energy storage has reached an inflection point in market adoption. It does so much. Uh, It helps the deployment of renewables. It helps the world reach critical emissions targets and delivers cost-effective grid services. Our listeners are certainly ready for the era of energy storage. So is Fluence. With over 12 years of experience and decades of energy sector knowledge, Fluence is your trusted partner for the most complex energy storage projects, pairing intimate market knowledge with cutting-edge technology and operational services. They've got a fully integrated sixth-generation technology stack that combines modular, factory-assembled hardware, comprehensive controls, and advanced digital intelligence with the latest safety advancements. Scale from one megawatt to gigawatt-sized deployments with solutions for your specific use case. Visit FluenceEnergy.com today to learn more. We're also brought to you by NorCal Controls. Every NorCal Controls project begins with a simple question. What approach best serves the customers? So you're developing a solar project and you're looking for uh, SCADA solutions or DOS solutions. Uh, NorCal offers those based on proven open architecture hardware and software, eliminating the need for restrictive service contracts and ongoing fees. The NorCal Way offers you a dedicated team with proven engineering excellence and customizable solar solutions. Because they are based on open architecture hardware and software, NorCal systems are designed to be easy to maintain, test, and troubleshoot. As the only system integrator in solar PV that comes from a traditional power generation background, NorCal has earned a reputation as the strongest in controls. Visit norcalcontrols.net for more. Almost exactly half a year ago, on February 12th, BP's new CEO, Bernard Looney, said it was time to reinvent his company. We had a major discussion about it on this podcast. It was a very big development, but light on details. And now some of the details are out. By just one decade from now, BP will if all goes as planned, cut its fossil fuel production by 40%. The company will stop exploring for oil in any new countries, and it will build out renewables at a rapid pace at about 5 gigawatts a year. Uh, For reference, Wood McKenzie, 
uh, expects 8 gigawatts of solar installations in the entire U.S. this year. So that's a pretty significant ramp up. Carbon Tracker says these announcements move BP to the top of the pack. Um, Jigger, remind us what Bernard Looney was calling for in February, you know, before we got sucked into the coronavirus crisis. Uh, and and how important this move is in backing up what he was talking about. Well, I, you know, I think Bernard Looney came in, you know, recognizing that ESG and, you know, the sort of social license um, was important, right? And that it, it then that BP and many other oil companies were losing that social license. And so I think he came in with an admission that this was a truism and that BP actually had to pivot to be able to, to you know, stay relevant with shareholders and with stakeholders, right? And and that was, I would say, the, the main thrust of his comments back in February. And then he followed up with, you know, pretty major cuts in employees um, from mostly white-collar jobs within BP uh, because he thought he needed new people. He needed, like, a, a radical rethinking and that he wasn't able to achieve different results with the same people. Um, and it was, you know, pretty, you know, large cut, right? And he said details to come later. And well, now the details are, are, are coming out. And, you know, I think that, you know, say what you will about Bernard Looney, I think he is working his butt off to not only, you know, say the right things, but actually to show through his actions that he's trying to do the right things. Melissa, what's he doing here? What, what, is, what feels new from BP right now? In these commitments, I mean, they're broadly saying that we're going to move towards being this oil and gas major, that pseudo becomes a utility. We're going to go pretty hard at adopting renewables. So I think their target of 50 gigawatts of renewables by 2030, that's going to put them on par with like EDF, the French utility. I mean, this is not an insignificant commitment. Um, you know, and I was reading some of the comments that have been made by BP CFO. And basically, they said, you know what, we're going to get double digit returns out of these assets, we're going to be trading electricity, we're going to be doing all these things to get really good returns on this. So this isn't just a investment that looks good, uh, you know, to the outside, it's not just a, a token, this is actually something we're going to make money off of increasingly over time, we're going to get really good at. So if they make that into a reality, it's really impressive. Yeah, so Jigger, Valentina Kreshmar, who is the VP of Corporate Research at Wood Mackenzie, put together this chart that shows the announced renewable power capacity, like the cumulative targets that a lot of the oil majors have announced. And, you know, you've got um, some of the companies like uh, Orsted and Total that have been well ahead of this. And, you know, Orsted is a major offshore wind developer. Um, you know, you've got RWE and Anji, which have invested significantly in distributed energy. Um, but they're, you know, BP and EDF are blowing these companies out of the water when it comes to announced targets. So um, it's, it's actually quite remarkable to see how BP has jumped to the top of the pack. We'll see actually how they execute. But how significant are the renewable energy targets and how the heck is it going to get there? So I think that the renewable energy targets are the least consequential part of their announcements, right? When you think about the fact that we're already building $200 billion a year of renewable energy, right? And we're going to build $2 trillion, let's say, over the next 10 years. And so 
50 gigawatts is another is 50 billion of that so that's two and a half percent of the total um if they didn't do it if they and remember they're saying that they're going to develop those assets not own them because you know it's cheaper to get other people's money to own them um and so if they didn't do it i think someone else would right and so unless they're claiming that all of that 50 gigawatts are in emerging markets where they actually have um, big footprints, that would be a big deal. I think if they're doing it mostly through light source in the US and Europe, I think other people probably would do it anyway. So I'm not, I don't think that's as consequential. I think the bigger consequence is, look, when you think about all of the largest wood companies in the 1800s, none of them made the transition to coal. And when you think about all the largest coal companies, none of them made the transition to oil. And you think about the largest oil companies, it is unlikely that any of them will make the transition to clean energy, right? And so the fact that BP is trying is a big deal, right? And it's something that John Brown tried to do back uh, when I was at BP, right? I think that, remember, right, John Brown was fighting all of the internal people at BP. In 1998, he said that um, global warming was real, right? He was the first major oil executive to do that. He then, you know, invested more into, you know, solar uh, at BP Solar. He, like, developed this entire wind regime. And then he was sacked unceremoniously in 2007 for being gay. So what happened to John Brown was that after all of this stuff came out, he was sued in court and he lied in court around having relationships with another man. They were He was outed for that and then had to resign unceremoniously, right? I think that it matters that like these oil companies like have had these internal struggles for a long time, right? Like this is a battle between the people at BP who basically wanted to keep them as an oil company and the people who want them to change, right? This is not an, a, a natural eventuality. Like this is not something that's naturally going to occur. It's only going to occur because someone like Bernard Looney is like reclaiming the mantle that John Brown left and actually is sacking thousands of people at the company and is saying, we will remake BP or else I will be the last CEO to ever be the CEO of BP, right? He's staking the entire company on the line with this transition. And that's what it'll take. It's the same thing that John Brown did in 2007 and, you know, got sacked for. So along these lines, I mean, I think that, yeah, the renewables target, I would push back a little. I say I think it is significant, but I agree with you. That it's probably not the most significant part of this announcement. Um, for me, when I was reading it and I was reading about producing 40 percent less oil a decade from now. What does that look like? I mean, what are they doing with those fields? How are they selling it? I was talking with my colleagues at the Center on Global Energy Policy who focus on oil a lot more than I do. And they're like, I got two, they said two words for you, um, divestment and off um, and off booking. But I, I'm like, well, off booking's two words, but that's fine. Um, but effectively, like, how are, how are we gonna do this? Um, so, you know, how is this company actually gonna do it? And, and how painful will this be or not? I mean, this is an oil and gas company to me that is saying, we're going to produce less oil and then we're going to build up our renewables business. And to me, that's significant. So when you've got BP saying it's going to produce 40% less oil, I would mention really quickly that I haven't read anywhere that that means that those wells are not going to get used by someone else. It just means that BP is going to reduce the oil that they produce. So do they sell those assets to someone else who will use them? Are they actually, I, I mean, I'm not reading about them pouring cement down the well and calling it good and just saying, I know those assets are there and we developed them, but we're not going to do anything with them. And I don't think that would make a heck of a lot of sense. Melissa, we've got a dynamic here that has only been accelerated during the pandemic. And that is 
American companies like Exxon and Chevron are resisting investor pressure. They're resisting calls from activist shareholders. Um, I think the oil industry in general has benefited from the, the the COVID stimulus in America. Meanwhile, the Europeans have said the our COVID, sti- COVID stimulus is going to be focused on renewable energy and on hydrogen. And the oil companies in, uh, that are you know based in Europe have been far out ahead of developing renewables and trying to shift their business models. So how is that split only getting wider in this COVID world as these trends accelerate? This is interesting. I think uh, that it was Dan Jurgen, so author of The Quest and the Prize, who said something to the effect of, in modern times, there's never been a bigger spread amongst oil and gas companies than uh, the spread we see across the Atlantic. So you've got like the folks in Europe and you see the actions that we're taking there. And then you see conversely what we're experiencing here in the US. And personally, as someone who spent the last decade living in Asia and Europe and the US and having these conversations across, I mean, all of these regions, I see that difference. I see the difference in the conversation when I'm in those off the record, you know, I'm flying the wall or sitting at the table conversations. Um, And I see it publicly in terms of how they're acting. I mean, really, everyone's looking at the same evidence when it comes to climate change. We're just really interpreting differently what our roles are. And that's something I see across oil and gas companies on either side of the Atlantic is saying, okay, what am I responsible for? Is it scope one, scope two emissions? Is it part of scope three? To what degree? And even in this BP announcement, you see some interesting math in terms of what they say they're responsible for and what kind of targets they're going to have. But the difference is real in my own experiences. And then it seems like it's real in many of our experiences, those of us who spend time you know, with both of these groups on both sides of that ocean. I would say it's not as much about what side of the Atlantic it's on, they're on as much as the history and the culture of these companies. Remember, BP and Shell were arms of their governments, right? BP owned like shoe factories in Malaysia or whatever it was that the BP government needed. It wasn't until the late 70s, early 80s that it spun out BP from the ownership of the British government. And then it became a private company, which is why John Brown was heralded, um, because he took them out of that crisis. And then I think, whereas Exxon and Chevron have always been um, arms of like sort of engineering prowess, right? So remember, like they have always been the groups that believe that they operate wells better than everyone else in the world. And so when you think about the national oil companies, they produce the vast majority of the oil in the world. I think the 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 shareholder backed companies that we're talking about here are a tiny percentage, less than 15% of global oil production. But what what Exxon does is they get called in by Russia to to show, here's how you can get more oil out of your wells. Here's how you can do it in Saudi. Here's how you can do it in other places. And I think, so what Exxon and Chevron are saying is they're saying, we think that the highest return to shareholders is going to be to continue to provide that service around the world. And what BP and Shell are saying is that we no longer think that is the highest return to shareholders. We think the highest return to shareholders is to continue to work in concert with the public officials in Europe who want us to decarbonize and want us to use our 50,000 engineers to help decarbonize the economy. So I've got I've I've got a question I have to ask you Jigger. So along these lines, so does that mean that you think that I know you said you don't think any of these oil and gas majors are going to, you know, bridge the gap to the future in this transition, but did you just say that BP might or that these types of uh, organizations with this culture might or at least they're most likely to? 
No, they're like, they're highly likely to go away, right? I mean, like in, in the history of transitions, no major company has ever made this transition. The only transitions that people have made are like family offices, like Pardee and some of those folks who've made transitions. But like these big companies, like, because think about it, like who do you think is better at developing renewable energy projects, BP or you know, like some of these other companies that you know about, right? Whether it's First Solar or SunPower or, you know, like Silicon Ranch or whatever else, right? Like it. Yeah, but all they need to do is just buy someone up. I mean, BP bought LightSource, one of the fastest growing utility scale developers in the world. And that's all they right, need but, is just but, to buy up that extra. But if you're a shareholder of BP, right? And all BP does is buy LightSource and leaves them by themselves, leaves them with their own culture, leaves them with their own pension plan, their own 401k, their own healthcare, and says, oh, look, we took credit for 50 gigawatts of renewables. Does that, is that a reason to buy PP stock? No, of course not. You would actually want BP to say, we're integrating LightSource directly into main BP, right? And all the people at BP are now working on developing renewable energy projects. And then in that situation, with that cost structure, right? BP pays people three times more than everyone else does because of their pension plan and everything else, right? Like if in that cost structure, do you still think that BP is going to be the most cost-effective developer of renewable energy in the world. I think they would be in Pakistan. I think they would be in Azerbaijan. I think they would be in Ivory Coast, where they actually have huge operations, and they actually know exactly how to navigate the government and navigate all that stuff. But are they going to be the lowest cost, most profitable renewable energy developers in the U.S.? I highly doubt that. Right? The reason LightSource is doing so well is because BP is a passive investor in LightSource, not because it's fully integrated into the company. Okay, let's go to yet another transition in the electricity sector. About a week and a half ago, the utility company PSEG, Public Service Enterprise Group, announced it would be selling more than six gigawatts of coal generating station, and it plans to focus instead on its nuclear fleet. So it's basically getting out of merchant power, getting out of merchant coal plants, and also selling off its much smaller solar portfolio. So that was a big announcement. But the announcement was nearly drowned out when severe power outages hit parts of New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut and lasted for nearly a week, over a week in some cases, as the tail end of Hurricane Isaias worked its way up the eastern seaboard. Now the governor of New York is threatening to revoke PSEG's operating license. Uh, is He is also lambasting Con Edison. And this is a big deal because... If you all remember in the wake of Hurricane Sandy in 2012, Long Island Power, PSEG, Con Edison had really significant problems and vowed to improve the way that they interacted with customers, improve their response times. Um, there were significant changes that were made in the way utilities responded to crises like this. But somehow, in 2020, people are out in New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut for well over a week in sweltering heat, uh, You know, the food going bad in the refrigerators. How is this happening? Uh, when we were supposed to have all these lessons that were learned after Superstorm Sandy. Jigger, what what happened here? Well, you know, I think that the folks who were the most, uh, you know, experienced in resiliency were, you know, talking to people about, look, the only way to really solve this problem is to go distributed, is to actually have a plan to make grids smaller, right? Like figure out a way to make each grid more resilient, right? And and figure out ways of like creating 
smaller pools. And then we had the New York Rev process and Catherine Hamilton and John Wellinghoff wrote a big piece about how we need to have distribution level trading and figuring out how to do these things. And, you know, I mean, particularly PSE&G, you know, less so Con Ed, but PSE&G for sure said, screw all you guys. We just want to push through $2 billion worth of rate base to harden the grid, right? And to put more money into just hardening our existing grid. We don't want to do any of this local stuff. Remember, Chris Christie was governor, and he said, we want to rebuild everything exactly the way it was before. We want to, like, just put those houses back up that, you know, blew away. And um, and I think what's what we're finding is, is that if you stay with the old way of doing things, well, then you get the same result that you got the last time around, right? That like we have more data today, which is great. So they were able to isolate who was out of power faster. They were able to like increase response times, but the actual resiliency of the infrastructure wasn't better. Well, and I would like to point out though that this storm happened in the middle of this ongoing pandemic we're talking about, right? So this has not been simple for utilities to manage. This has not been simple. I mean, we have in... In this process, a line work actually died trying to restore power. And, you know, backing up a minute, we see utilities saying, okay, we've got to keep our key workers healthy. We can't have them being exposed to high levels of this uh, virus. So what are we going to do? So we are going to do things that make it much more complicated to send line workers from one region of the United States to the other, which is something that we would do a lot in these storms. So you would send a bunch of guys guys and women, but mostly guys in a truck um, up from one region of the country to the other. You'd put two or four people in that truck. You'd have them stay in hotel rooms, multiple people in that hotel room, go out to local restaurants, etc. Each one of those is an exposure point where they can get sick. And we don't have an overabundance of transmission and distribution of line workers, of linemen. So, you know, in the midst of all this, they were trying to manage this with less resources than they normally would have. So less tools in their toolbox to actually put out. So I'm not giving them a pass. I'm not saying, oh, it's fine that so many people were that power for so long. But I'm saying they were managing it in a pretty intense situation. Right. So how much should we get? I, I, I want to be fair here. So it, that is absolutely true that um, there were better response times after Sandy because utilities got better at deploying resources from around the country. And in a normal world, that's a lot easier to do. And Melissa, I completely take your point. So should we be giving these utilities a bit of a pass? I mean, this is exactly what people were warning about, that if a major storm or if we had a major flood or something, that local responses would be overwhelmed. And here we have a couple of utilities that are clearly showing that that was the case. So that does not excuse the fact that people were, you know, in sweltering heat uh, without power for over a week. I mean, that's terrible. Yeah, and unhealthy and dangerous. But we yep. kind of predicted this could happen. So I don't. I don't know where to draw the line. No, I'm saying it. I'm saying it a little bit differently. I'm saying that after Superstorm Sandy, where you actually had a real hurricane hit, and by the way, like Superstorm Sandy was like the second or third hurricane in a row. Like they had a couple of other tropical storms that went up to Connecticut, and so Superstorm Sandy was sort of like you know, like the culmination of a couple storms that that it hit, they said, we have this plan. And this plan is going to make our grid more resilient. And we have all these ways to do things. Look, I love utility line workers. I love people who work for the utility. I'm not blaming any of the people that are there. I think they did as much as they could with what they had. I'm saying that 
we had this entire plan put in place. FEMA put all this money to work, right? This was during the Obama administration. So theoretically, the administration was competent. Like, so you even had like all this back and forth, right? You had plans in place, you had this, you had this. And this is not even a hurricane. Like by the time it hit Lipa in New York, it had gone through North Carolina, DC, right? Like it had gone all the way up the coast. It was just high winds, right? And to suggest that we never have high winds ever in the New Jersey, New York area, right? Like you would expect that the plans that they put in place post Sandy would have actually worked for this event. Now, it may, may not have worked for another Sandy. I get it, right? Like my brother-in-law, their entire first floor of their building had been, you know, flooded out during Hurricane Sandy. They had to walk downstairs. All the, all the like, you know, transformers had blown. Like, I get it. That's hard. This is not hard. Like, we were supposed to be ready for this. And I think we just failed miserably after seven years of spending a ton of ratepayer money and being assured by everyone at the utility that the ratepayer money was going to be spent well and that the response was going to be better the next time around. I think this is a good point. I mean, it's so we often focus on how do we place blame after an event like this. And the reality is we need to discuss more about where do we place responsibility and where do we empower groups to actually get us to this more reliable, resilient system that we need and that we need even more as we decarbonize. As we, I mean, we talked about at the top of the show, right? In that scenario, in any of these kind of reputable climate change decarbonization scenarios, we use more electricity. So we're increasingly relying on it. So one of the reasons why this wasn't worse than it could have been is because we didn't have every single person being on an electric vehicle that then runs out of charge on that battery and then they're stuck. We have a lot of things that don't just run off electricity. We want to move to electricity for a number of reasons. But if we do that and we don't invest in the grid and we don't figure out how to have a more resilient system, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. Um, I remember... I think it was in November last year, there was an article in the Wall Street Journals that was written by um, Jason Bordoff, the director of our center, which highlighted, you know, this point saying we can't neglect the grid. We have to invest in it simultaneously. We can't wait until it breaks because it's going to be bad. It's going to hurt people um, and it's going to hurt our economy. So we got to invest now. In 2013, I moved up to New York and worked closely with Richard Kaufman in the Energy Czar's office. Like we had this fight. FEMA gave us money and we could decide where to put it. We could have done it on microgrids. That's what everybody was telling us to do, because that's what was resilient during Superstorm Sandy. And we lost that fight, right? And so now the question is, is like, are we going to win that fight this time around? Because it's the only way to really ensure resiliency. These long transmission lines, et cetera, you can never spend enough money unless you bury them underground to actually, you know, pre prevent these mass outages. So let's just very quickly turn to the other piece of news that I led this section with, with which was PSEG selling more than six gigawatts of coal from its portfolio. It does not want to be a merchant generator anymore. Melissa, what do you make of this announcement? I mean, it makes sense given what I've seen PSEG signaling. Uh, so, you know, they're getting rid of this coal and holding on to the nuclear. So that seems par for the course. Yeah, six gigawatts of coal is a lot of coal-fired power. Uh, Jigger, what does this signal to you? I mean, nuclear plants aren't exactly doing well right now, so why would PSEG double down on nuclear? Well, remember, PSEG um, has a subsidy from the state of New Jersey, so they're paying to keep these plants open, as they should, by the way. I think existing nuclear should be open. But this is a conversation we had um, you know, around NRG and David Crane. 
And, you know, the fact that he should have sold the coal plants earlier, he would have gotten more money for him. And the same thing's true here. Ralph Izzo is admitting defeat here and basically saying, I know you guys told me for seven years to sell these power plants, and I just didn't want to do it because I love the cash flow coming off of it. And now you're right. I should have sold them earlier, but now I'm going to catch up and make up for lost time and sell them now. And he's getting pennies on the dollar for him because the people who buy them also know they're going to be shut down pretty soon, right? And so... So it's just a sad state of affairs, um, and it it basically shows the laggard nature of many of these utility companies who have been, you know, given awards for being progressive and bold. Well, it also shows um, how difficult. I mean, between gas prices and battery prices, it's really getting harder and harder to argue, argue that coal is needed for reliability in the system. And so the kind of people holding on to that reliability argument, it's it's just not there, um, or it's quickly disappearing. All right, let's turn to our free electrons to wrap up the show. Melissa, as our guest co-host, you get to go first. What do you got? Oh, I've got so many things that I could talk about this week. Um, But one that I'm going to highlight is there's some new workout that is highlighting how our understanding of air pollution from the energy system is so much stronger these days than it was 15 years ago when I started doing my work around energy and air pollution. And it's to the point where you don't need climate and you don't need greenhouse gas emissions to actually justify an energy transition. Just look at the health. I mentioned it really briefly earlier, but just look at the health effects and the health cost savings that we see. Um, it's exciting to see the science get so strong. So we're not arguing about what the science says. It's it's screaming at us what it says. So that's what I've been reading about this week. Wow. You started, there's this new workout and I thought you were talking about fitness, not work that is coming out. <laughs> <laughs> well, we we all do need to work out during COVID. Keep keep ourselves together as we do this. Um, I'm going to go out for a walk after this. So I'll call that my workout of the day. Um, but no, new research out. There we go. <laughs> Jigger, what's your free electron? So I think that, you know, we've had a lot of people talk about limitations to renewable energy, um, you know, penetration and market share in grids. And, you know, I just wanted to highlight a new summary that came out this week um, around the fact that for the first uh, six months of the year, uh, the European grid was about 40% renewable energy. And uh, that's across the entire grid from Poland to Eastern Europe. And so I think it's um, it shows that that our grid operators really do know how to integrate a large quantity of solar and wind, and it does have the tools necessary to keep grid stable. Um, and, you know, a lot of the, uh, you know, sort of doomsayers were doomsayers for no good reason. Well, I'll just say on that one, I, I do love seeing all these new records being hit because it does just reinforce what we can do. And it's exciting to see. And it's happening consistently. It's not one offs. It's happening across the board. Totally. Meanwhile, here in America, a lot of people are still working from home and will be for a long time. And what we're seeing is a predictable decline in commercial industrial energy consumption and a rise in residential consumption. We've known that since March when everyone really started working from home all at once. Uh, in you know many areas, we see a you know, 15% increase in residential energy use. And there's been a couple pieces of reporting on this from the Wall Street Journal and from the California Current that put this into perspective for me. I mean, it's so obvious, but it's a really helpful way of looking at it. Those are energy costs that people would maybe that that, that the office would take on or people's workplaces would take on that are now shifting to individuals. So while 
you have millions of people who are out of work or people who are struggling financially. They're now taking on this burden of higher energy bills. And, you know, in many parts of the country, we've had searing heat for weeks and it's just a really rough time for folks. So thinking about this, not just in terms of percentage increases, but from this burden shift from the office to the home is a really helpful and kind of sad way of thinking about it. We talk so often about energy access in other countries, but energy poverty in the U.S. is real. There are many families around this country who before COVID were having to make decisions between what bills they were going to pay. And it's just it's just worse now. Um, and so I feel like this is something we can make better. Well, and a lot of the if we think about it and act on it, and a lot of the moratorium around uh, electricity cutoffs has gone yeah. away. Um, folks are, you know, reinstating, um, shutting off people's electricity. So I think things are going to get much worse after the summer season and going into the fall when people, when utility companies feel empowered to cut people off. Yeah, the sad reality for sure. Uh, and it, what's interesting is in California, um, the there are a lot of factors, including rooftop solar, that are kind of masking this shift because it's unclear uh, how, how much those are pushing down demand from the grid. One wonky point on that, Stephen, we're still required by law to submit monthly data on how much solar we're producing on each person's rooftop. It's just that no one's actually bothered to compile that data to actually be able to figure it out. Hmm. All right. Well, Melissa, thanks for joining us again this week. Um, you can go let your Roomba loose. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go let it know it's out of garage pur purgatory because <laughs> that's where it is right now. <laughs> no, but thanks for having me, y'all. This was really fun. Yeah, so enjoyable. That's Dr. Melissa Lott. She's a senior research scholar at the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. Catherine Hamilton will be back. Uh, Melissa's going to be back with us again next week, so we're looking forward to that. Catherine will be back the following week for our live show on August 25th. Jigger Shah is the president of Generate Capital. Jigger, always fun. Yes. Stay safe, everybody. <laughs> the Energy Gang is a co-production of Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media. Ingrid Lobet is our senior editor. Sean Marquand mixes the show. Uh, thank you so much for listening. If you want to support us, as usual, go to Apple, leave us a rating and review, tell your friends or colleagues about us. Word of mouth is still very important, and we can be found anywhere you get your podcasts. So we'll be here with you on whatever platform you use next week. This is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. Talk to you soon.